First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is where our message will be drawn from this morning. First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. I've uh, entitled uh, these two verses, God's Elect. God's Elect. For genuine Christians, their eternal destiny is a settled matter. Their eternal destination in the presence of God was determined prior to their physical existence and even the existence of the created order. As God's elect, they, or we, uh, have been chosen for eternal blessing. Think about that for a moment. God determined to bless us with eternal blessing before he ever created us. What a marvelous reality that is to ponder, to contemplate. Peter here begins this letter with the doctrine of election. His salutation or greeting, which I just read you, is filled with eternal realities. It is addressed to Christians who were or would suffer persecution for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at the time of this missive from Peter, Nero was on the throne of the Roman Empire. And he was no friend of Christians uh, nor Christianity. Soon, some of Peter's readers might be among those made burning torches in Nero's garden and fed to the lions. But, Peter doesn't begin with how to handle persecution. We would think that would be the first thing he would do when facing that and those people are facing that. He does it later, but here what he does, here's them as God's chosen at the end of verse 1. They are rejected by the world, but are chosen by God. So no matter what happens to them or to us in this world, God's purposes for us are certain and gracious. Keep that in mind. They are certain and gracious. His purposes for us in this world. Peter, as an apostle or sent one from Jesus Christ, then writes authoritatively uh, to his fellow believers, his fellow elect. And he begins with describing their condition, uh, where they are, as we see in verse 1. And we'll give the heading here, the elect are aliens. Our relationship to the world is defined by that term, alien. The Greek term, translated aliens, pictures genuine believers living as resident aliens beside people to whom they do not belong. We are God's people. They are not. We live among unbelievers, but we are no longer part of the world system as they are. 
this state of spiritual affairs came about by the realization of the objective of our election. And that objection, objective was when we were born again. The new birth. That's what Peter writes in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Those verses apply to the chosen. They apply to the elect. They apply to you if you are a genuine Christian. Spiritual aliens were scattered people. The word renders scattered from the original language is diaspora, meaning widely distributed geographically. There are different zip codes. Five cities listed in our text, and by their order, suggest a postal route. The letter from Peter delivered to the churches within the cities begins with, you notice there in verse 1, Pontus. Pontus. The first one on the postal route. Now, the five cities were a part of the Roman Empire. Remember, I mentioned Nero's on the throne of the empire. He was the ruler. He was a wicked man, as you all know. If you know anything about Nero and Roman history and their emperors, this guy was despicable. And these Christians lived under his authority, lived under his rulership. Their location was designated in those days as Asia Minor. Today, the region is modern Turkey. By the way, the seven churches, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, were located in western Turkey. The area are regionally south of the Black Sea. Currently, the Black Sea is bounded by the nations of Russia, Moldova, Ukraine, and Turkey. Google it. <laughs> Different names, same geography, same places. First city I mentioned here is in verse 1, Pontus. People from this city were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 9. When the Holy Spirit descended upon the church, the birthday of the church, they were there. And some of those people apparently went back to Pontus, shared the gospel, and there are elect people living there. The next city is Galatia. It contains the towns of Derby, Lystra, Iconium. You may remember those names if you read the Bible, if you're familiar with the scripture. You understand that Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, Paul ministered to those cities. He ministered to them on his second missionary journey. Cappadocia. It's the next city in the, on the route. Cappadocia was located north of Cilicia. Tarsus. Uh, Paul's hometown was in Cilicia. Some of the Cappadocian residents were also present on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 9. Then there's Asia. People from that locale were there as well on that day when the church was born in Jerusalem. Next is Bithynia. 
According to Acts chapter 16, verse 7, Paul, on his second missionary journey, was forbidden by the Spirit of Jesus from evangelizing it. Remember? They were going to go, and the Spirit of Jesus said, no, they were forbidden. And then there was a Macedonian call that came to them, and that's when they went into Europe. That's what God intended. However, later on, the gospel was taken to Bithynia. That's why there is a church there. It was a church there. That's why there are elect people there, because the gospel went there for God's elect to hear and believe. And then this letter from Peter would go to them. You notice what Peter does. He writes here in the bottom of the verse, he says, who are chosen? The residents of those cities who are Christians, he designates as the chosen. Chosen. Translates to Greek, Greek, eklektos, eklektos, meaning to pick out, to select. The commentator D. Edmund Hebert writes, quote, The verbal adjective elect is passive, marking the readers as objects of the electing action of God. End of quotation. What he is saying, I think you get it, is that they didn't choose themselves. God chose them. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, uh, this has always been an impressive statement uh, to me. It says, he chose us, but that word chose is in the middle voice. It's reflective middle voice. And it can be translated, he chose for himself. God, the Father, had personal interest. He said, I'm choosing them for myself. Think about that. If you've been born again in eternity, God said, I'm going to choose you for myself. It's profound. The elect had nothing whatsoever to do with their election. God's action toward them, toward us, was a sovereign action. It was an unconditional action. We couldn't have had anything to do with it because we weren't here. We didn't get a vote. It wasn't a democracy. <laughs> God's in charge. He's the sovereign king. It was his initiative that has made us who we are. This is family truth. What I mean by this, these truths belong to the family of God. One of the reasons God chose us is that we might partake of the heavenly inheritance. Wow. Verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Think about that. God chose you if you're a Christian because he wanted to give you in the future eternity an inheritance that cannot fade away. So, he predetermined our eternal future before we even existed. 
corporately, believers are a chosen race. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. You, hear, you see this elective idea here. But you are a chosen race. It's the only part of the verse we want to talk about related to what we're discussing now. The word race, genos, refers to people with a common heritage. Here, believers are united. Believers have a common heritage because of the new birth. In fact, because of who we are in Christ, believers, whatever our background, we are a chosen race. An elect race. We're a new race. This new race transcends all natural distinctives of ancestry, language, and culture. So, no matter where you go, wherever you find Christians, whatever their background, whatever their language, whatever their skin tone, if they belong to Christ, they're part of this new race. It transcends all these passing earthly distinctions. Chosen, elected by the Father. That's who we are. But um, the election, back in our text, verse 2, election to salvation was according to the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge has been uh, misunderstood by many Christians. They don't really get the meaning of it. They, 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 <clears throat> they conclude that foreknowledge is simple advanced knowledge. God in their thinking just simply looked down the tunnel of time to see who would receive or reject Christ. The ones who received Christ, in this view, are the ones that God <laughs> elected. In other words, man does the choosing rather than God. Thus man's will is done, not God. In this view, man is sovereign. God has been dethroned. Now, we hasten to add that yes, God is omniscient. He knows everything because he's God. But let me add this here. The reason he knows everything because he's determined everything. Everything is certain to come to pass because God has determined what's going to come to pass. In his plan, he decreed certain events that would transpire in human history and at the particular time in human history that God wanted it to transpire, it did because in eternity, he said it would and it does. That's how he knows everything because he determined everything. So he knows every single event that happens, will happen, in human history. The MacArthur Study Bible, I think, puts it succinctly and helpfully. God planned before, not observed 
before. Right? You get that? Yeah, that's how it was. He wasn't looking, oh, yeah, okay, that's what I'll do. Since y'all going to do that, I'm going to do this. No, God planned and they did it. That's how it happened. So you see the idea that God made his plans based on what fallen finite creatures would do is bogus. It's foolish theology. It's not that at all. In fact, you can see in the same chapter, there's a word that's used, it's the same word in verse 20. Refers to Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And the he there, the antecedent is Christ in verse 19. And what the text is telling us is that God foreknew Christ in eternity past. Now, are you, is he simply saying he knew who he was? Why, come on. Of course, but that's not the point. Christ was chosen as man's redeemer. That's the idea. The foreknowledge of God in relation to us carries the meaning of to love beforehand, to set his love on us. It's an intimate, saving relationship. That's what foreknowledge is. He said, I'm going to set my love on them. I'm going to elect them. That's what it is. G.J. Polkinghorne said this, his intention to bless, excuse me, his eternal intention to bless. That's what foreknowledge means. God's intention to eternally bless us. Foreknowledge, further, is a manifestation of the Father's gracious character. Yes, it is. It's gracious. This, this foreknowledge has practical, everyday meaning for the believer, uh, the believers to whom Peter wrote, and for us as well. Now think about this. For they were experiencing and would experience trying times. They would suffer for their faith in Christ. I mentioned earlier, some of them were fed to the lions. We know that historically. But God's loving concern for our well-being is assured to us because God knows everything and uh, knows about everything, everything about everything. And he's always known everything. And even our trying circumstances are part of his purposes for us. Keep that in mind. Even our suffering is part of his eternal purposes for us. But you can be assured as you experience them that he loves you because he's already set his love on you by electing and saving you. He's assured your eternity. So whatever transpires down here, understand God's got your best in mind, even for that, those t- trials and troubles. That's what Peter is telling them. May I add something? Notice, you won't read Peter talking about just hang on or your blessings around the corner. 
that is bunk. What might be around the corner are troubling times. Some trials, some deep waters, some hurts. But you have to remember who you belong to. You're God's elect. It's amazing that Peter didn't talk about any such stuff. But he told them what you're dealing with and what you will deal with. Do understand who you are. You're God's elect. Knowing you belong to him. That's settled. By the way, that is the big blessing. Your soul saved. That is the big blessing that you were elected in eternity past. That is the big blessing. You're not going to be here forever, but you're going to be somewhere forever. Don't listen to these guys conning you with simple material blessings around the corner and all that. That's, they're putting that in their pockets. Suckering people with that stuff. And then when uh, the walls cave in and the ceiling collapses in the calamity in a person's life, they're wondering, well, well, I thought I was getting a blessing. No. You need something other than some promise from some bogus preacher. Well, I could say more about that, but I guess I'll go on. I'm going to tell you what you do. Get in the book and see what it says and evaluate what those guys say against what this says, and then you'll know y'all are false because this is truth. This will build you up. That won't. This will direct you. They won't. This will be soul, food for your soul. He can't give that to you. There are clouds without water. Get in the book. Find out who you are scripturally and live in light of that. God's foreknowledge. He set his love on us. So ultimately everything is going to be okay with us. The B portion of verse 2 according to the foreknowledge of the Father God the Father the first person of Trinity we just saw that second person of Trinity by the sanctifying work of the Spirit so we move from the first person of the Trinity to the second person the third person of the Trinity the Holy Spirit and we see what he does in relation to our salvation. The outworking of the Father's elective choice in eternity is in time in human history. Sanctifying or sanctify means separation, to set apart. The Holy Spirit set apart the elect from sin to God, to God by means of the new birth. We're uh, in sin, dead in sins and trespasses. And what the Holy Spirit did at the new birth, he set us apart from our sin and unto God. We changed places. We're no longer in sin. Now we belong to God. He regenerated us. Gave us new life. He caused us to be born again. John chapter 3 and Titus chapter 3 verse 5. 
the Holy Spirit's sanctifying ministry include, included the gifts of faith and repentance. We received from him faith so we could uh, trust Christ. We received from him the ability to repent, so we did. Ephesians 2, 8 and Acts chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. Sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is also illustrated in chapter 2. Again, we were there, 9 and 10. Notice what it says, but you're chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Sanctifying work of the Spirit. We proclaim the excellencies of our God. Now, the Holy Spirit throughout a believer's life, he makes him holy. Very important, he makes us holy. Sanctifies us. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It's progressive holiness. Progressive holiness. So that's what he does in the life. You want to know what the Holy Spirit is doing? One of the things he's doing is check out your life and see if you're becoming more like Christ. That is a sure biblical sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Not goosebumps. Biblically, you know the Spirit's at work when you're looking more like Jesus. The elect are aliens. Next heading, the goal for the elect. The goal for the elect. Verse 2, the C portion, you notice, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. We see now the second person of the Trinity. You notice something? God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. It's a Trinitarian passage. And a greeting to the saints. Obeying Jesus in history is the divine goal for the elect. That word obey conveys the picture of listening and submitting to that which is heard. In other words, okay, Lord, I heard what you said. This is what you command. This is what you say, do or not do. This is what my mission is, and guess what? I'm going to do it. That's obedience. See, the elect, what we did at salvation, we obeyed the truth, the gospel. 1 Peter 1, verses 22 and then the rest of our life is one of obedience. Day in and day out. He is Lord. Now, I heard something the other day and I, I thought about it. I said I need to at some point address this. Because I started talking about it. And, um, and you've all heard it. And we all have. And there's truth to it. There are those who say this is it. What I was thinking about. What I heard. Once saved, always saved. Uh, that statement has been used uh, by people who wanted to uh, give themselves some assurance that if they believe the facts of the gospel, they're okay. They can just keep on living anyway because after all, I'm, I've been saved and 
Once saved, always saved. Well, that's true if you're genuinely born again. If you've been born again genuinely, if you really belong to the Lord, yes, you will persevere in the faith. Yes, he will preserve you. Yes, you will die saved. Yes, that's true. God doesn't take his salvation back. That's certainly true. But Paul Rees writes, now listen to this, quote, the sign and proof of being among the elect is not an empty prating of how secure we are. But we are at once, but we are once and we have believed uh, how secure we are uh, since we believed, but rather how sensitive we are to the principle and practice of obedience to the Savior we have trusted. That's what is what's true. If we're among the elect, it'll be worked out in our obedience to the Savior that we've trusted as our Lord, right? So if a person's always talking about, yeah, once saved, always saved, I'd have to ask them, well, how's your obedience going? How's your submission to the authority of Christ going? See, that's a sign. That's, that's what you have to evaluate. Not some prayer you prayed somewhere, sometime, some day back in the future. Past, rather. Now, let me hasten to add, unless you're made nervous, when we talk about obedience. Amen. This is an honest brother. You know that's true. There are no Christians who perfectly and completely obey because we're still in the flesh, right? We're like Paul. Every time I want to do good, evil is always present. What he was meaning, every time I want to do, keep the law perfectly, guess what? I failed. That's why we confess our sins, right? Amen. If you haven't been confessing your sins, you don't know what you are. Let me help you. I can help you confess some of them. <laughs> So did you see that one? Oh, did you hear that? Uh, you need to go confess. <laughs> we don't um, obey perfectly or completely. But get this point, there is a pattern. A pattern. You've heard people talk about a pattern of rec recognition. Pattern recognition. There will be a pattern in our life of obedience. You see, Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, we're servants of righteousness. That happened to us at salvation. We're now slaves of righteousness. Previously, we were slaves of sin. That's been changed. That's how you know about your obedience. Notice in the text, it may be sprinkled with his blood. Uh, let's hurry on here. Uh, the words relate to obedience and be sprinkled with his blood. The language here, of course, is figurative. The elect have not been literally sprinkled with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The terminology here in this text, uh, and be sprinkled with his blood, uh, comes from Exodus chapter 24. Would you go with, there with me quickly? We're going to have to uh, expedite this somewhat. 
Exodus chapter 24, but I want to give these to you. We're going to have to leave. Uh, I see some stuff falling out there. It'll be all right. I'm praying for you. <laughs> Say thanks. <laughs> Exodus chapter 24. Well, this passage, let me just abbreviate, abbreviate it. Let's, let me tell you what's going on here. Uh, Moses has gotten the, the law of God, civil, ceremonial, and moral law, all of that from the Lord at Mount Sinai. He came back, told them, and they all agreed, yes, whatever the Lord said, we're going to do this. Point. Verses 7 and 8. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do it, and we will be obedient Verse 8, so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Ah, now you see it. That's where we get the uh, terminology that Peter uses under the direction of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's from that incident. Now let me explain it a little further. Moses took the blood from the animal sacrifice and sprinkled on the people that visually and ceremonially marked the people's obedience, promise, and pledge to God made it official. The shed blood was a tangible demonstration that two parties made a binding commitment, God and the people of Israel. And what the Holy Spirit does with Peter here. He compares that Old Testament pledge of Israel's to the inherent covenant and saving faith in Jesus Christ. That inherent covenant, that agreement between Christ and the believer entails a similar promise to obey the words of the Lord. That's what it's talking about. When you and I came to faith in Christ, we not only received the benefit of his death on the cross, we also made the pledge that we would obey him. We'd submit to his sovereign authority. He is Lord. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. You're saying, yes, you're Lord. Not only are you God, yes, you're God, but you're sovereign over me. Remember Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. People are going to come to the Lord in the last day, but Lord, Lord, do we not do this in your name? Do we not? He said, depart from me. I never knew you. You know why? Because they called him Lord, but they didn't submit to him. You see, what we do, we receive obedience and we give in return, uh, receive forgiveness and in return we give obedience. That's what's going on here. He says, sprinkle with his blood. We're going to obey him. Fascinating, I got to say it again. Isn't that fascinating that in a passage that's dealing with the suffering of Christians, Peter says, you'd obey the Christ. And as you read through 1 Peter, as you've read through, you see there are imperatives. How we relate to people in the body, how we relate to government, how we relate to 
to suffering. We, we do that in obedience to Jesus Christ. If you have made that connection, now you know. The elect are aliens, the goal for the elect. Next thing, the blessings of being the elect. 2D, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Uh, the two words listed there, may and the verb be, express a wish prayer on the part of Peter for his hearers. He wishes for them that they experience the fullest Fullest measure implies uh, that they are already recipients of God's grace and peace. They are, were, as we are. But the additional grace and peace for the elect suggests that it is needed to match the growth of hostility which was coming toward them. Indeed, God will do that. He will give grace and peace when you face trials and troubles. He'll, he'll give you what you need. People worry about uh, some problem down the road. Don't worry about that. When you get there, God will give you the grace for that problem down the road. He's not going to give it to you today. He'll give it to you when you need it. He'll do that for all of his people. Let me conclude. I mean, I've shared some of this before. I want to share it again about election. Election is a pride-crushing doctrine. It crushes our religious and moral pride because it tells us we had absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. Nothing. So we can't run around with our chest stuck out acting like a peacock. Look at me. Because we had nothing to do with it whatsoever. Election is a doctrine that should enhance or elevate our worship. Because God in his goodness, his grace has given us faith and repentance. He didn't have to do that. And for that alone, we ought to be worshiping him. Waiting on somebody to say, I, I'm just worshiping the Lord because he elected me. I belong to him forever. Give him praise for that. The election produces deep joy in the belief in the believer. Think about it. If we had not been elected by him, we'd be utterly hopeless for eternal salvation. We'd be headed straight to hell and could do nothing about it. You want some joy? Find it in the reality that God, if you're a Christian, has chosen you to be his. And quit trying to find your joy in temporal passing stuff that won't matter 100 years from now because you won't be here anyway. Even less than that. Rejoice in the fact that he chose you. It's deep joy. Being God's elect. It's a priceless reality. Priceless reality. May I, may I tell you something? I wouldn't trade my status in Christ for all the wealth of the wealthiest people in the world 
and all the wealth of the Fortune 500 companies. If that transaction could be made, I said, keep your money. I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses and land. Keep all that stuff. Give me Jesus. And he's given us Jesus. That's the most precious thing we have. The person of our Lord because we're elected in him. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for what you've done for us. We're the elect of God. We're humbled because you didn't have to choose us. You could have given us what we deserved. An eternal hell separated from your glory and power and presence. But you set your love on us and called us by your grace through the gospel to believe on Jesus Christ our Lord for that we are eternally grateful we pray for those here this morning we don't know if they're elected or not they don't know but if they want Jesus we pray that you call them to yourself they will believe on him you say whosoever will let them leave may they respond to the good news of Christ we pray these things in the name of Christ